For the last two weeks, Charleston has been hosting the annual Spoleto USA Performing Arts Festival. The centerpiece of this year's festival is the world premiere of an opera called Omar. If you've been following along with the Post and Courier's coverage, you probably know that Omar is Omar ibn Said, a West African scholar who was enslaved, first in Charleston and then in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Omar was Muslim. He read and wrote Arabic, and he wrote his own autobiography. That text is what inspired the opera that is being performed for the very first time here in Charleston. I'm Emily Williams. This is Understand South Carolina, and this week, we're going to the opera. Opening night of Omar was May 27th. By the time this episode airs, there will be one more performance left, coming up on this Saturday, June 11th. When Spoleto audiences take their seats to see the show, they face a large image of Omar. The real Omar. It's from a photograph taken later in Omar's life around 1850, when he was living in North Carolina. So, as the show is about to begin, the lights dim, and the orchestra is just starting to play, everyone in the audience is looking up at this huge image of the real Omar. And then, as you're looking at it, you realize the photograph is moving. Omar blinks, his head turns just slightly, the curtain comes up, and the opera begins. And that's it. I mean, that's Omar coming to life. That's what it is. And I, I think that moment, that moment hints at the majesty that you're about to see. That's Mina Marcana, the general director of Spoleto Festival USA. He was announced as the director in July 2021. At that point, Omar was already years in the making. The opera was supposed to premiere in 2020, but because of the pandemic, it was delayed until 2021, and then it was delayed again until 2022. So when I was in the running for this position, I knew very much about the piece. I knew what the piece represented. I knew as well what Spoleto and Charleston represented, and I knew that the festival could be a fit for me because... This is a piece that is about platforming historically the most marginalized voice in North America, that of an enslaved Muslim African in the Carolinas. Uh, And doing that through art, through the collaboration of opera is, is a pretty spectacular idea. And doing that in the city in which he was sold into bondage, in which Omar bin Said was sold into bondage in 1807, is even more monumental. So I realized that Spoleto was not just a place of artistic experimentation, but a place where people wanted to create art and create work that could bridge different perspectives, could engender the necessary conversations that we are missing in other parts of our society and other discourses in our society and could be about platforming marginalized voices, which is something that I'm deeply interested in as an Egyptian, as someone who's actually grown up speaking Arabic and can read and write it. It it seemed almost like fate. I'm Adam Parker. I cover race and history at The Post and Courier. I used to write uh, in the features department. I used to cover the arts. 
So I took a pretty deep interest in the whole Omar opera development um, once it was announced by Spoleto Festival. Omar ibn Said was from what's today Senegal, along the Senegal River. And um, back in the early 1800s, in 1807, he was enslaved. By then, he was, I think, in his 30s, so he wasn't a super young guy. And he was a scholar, a literate Muslim scholar. And he was brought into Gadsden's Wharf, which is where the new International African American Museum uh, is now located and will open soon. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, or if you've been following the Post and Courier's coverage, you know that reporter Jennifer Barry Haas and photographer Gavin McIntyre put together a whole project about Omar's life and story that was published last year. They traveled to Fayetteville, North Carolina, and even to Senegal to learn more about him. I'll leave a link to that episode in today's show notes. To make a long story short, fast forward, you know, he leaves Charles, he escapes Charleston and is re-enslaved in Fayetteville. And many years later, his enslaver there encourages him to write down his story. And so we have, on the record, this remarkable autobiography. It's very small, but it's this autobiography written in Arabic by an enslaved person in the United States. So it's really, really interesting. And his autobiography was acquired by the Library of Congress some years ago and translated into English. And it little by little sort of became known in a few circles, you know, among scholars and among some artists. And Nigel Redden, the former director of Spoleto Festival, uh, was introduced to this and became like completely obsessed with it. You know, he would talk about it with anybody who would listen to him. And then his uh, colleagues um, sort of thought maybe this would be an interesting opera. Nicole Tanny, in particular, uh, came up with the idea of staging this in some manner. And they invited Rhiannon Giddens to lead that charge, and thus we have Omar. Rhiannon Giddens is a pretty remarkable artist. She's doing a lot of historical excavation. Her kind of main instrument these days is a banjo. She also plays viola and she plays other things and she's a trained opera singer, in fact. But in her popular music practice, she likes to play banjo a lot. And the banjo, of course, has African origins. So ever since the early part of her career, she's been interested in examining this history this musical history. So Omar came along and kind of fit right in. She didn't know anything about Omar. She didn't know much about Muslim Africans who had been enslaved. So she was fascinated by the the idea of Omar and learning more about it and kind of shedding light on this aspect of American slavery. What's interesting is that the the way she pursued the music for the opera is uh, pretty fascinating. First of all, she chose to collaborate with Michael Abels. He's best known for his film music. He's very accustomed to working with traditional orchestras. Rhiannon would come up with these various melodies, often in different styles, but clearly calling on popular music and folk music, spirituals and so on. And then Michael would orchestrate it, basically, and with, I'm sure, a lot of input from Rhiannon. And the end result is this kind of hybridization of musical styles, 
Well, in some cases, it's hybrid. In some cases, it's very the style is very clear. It's very dominant. I mean, they move from style to style throughout the opera. But it's all performed by trained opera singers. And that was very deliberate because they really wanted to um, create an opera that had the potential to become part of the standard repertoire. An opera that would generate arias and an overture, for example, that might be performed again and again. Uh, Or students, young singers, could audition, go to auditions, and you know, you go to an audition with various arias that you pluck from different operas, and why not Julie's aria from Omar, for example? So they did this in a very deliberate way to kind of combine traditional popular music styles with classical music and to create this uh, very beautiful score. It really, I think, works quite beautifully. I mean, if, if you hear it, it's, it sounds like an opera. And yet, it's drawing from these wonderful traditions that are familiar to people. You know, so it's accessible in a way without, without being simplistic. It's really cool. Opera can be a hybrid form that can tell multitudes. Traditionally, opera is seen as something that is elitist, as abstruse, as esoteric, as a representative of an enclave of of European wealth and power. But I think that if opera is utilized correctly, it can tell powerful stories through song and through visual imagery and through stage direction. And I think, to me, that's what makes Omar successful in that it is operatically performed. It also pushes back against the received operatic traditions. You know, there's so much in opera that is based on European identity, European hegemony, so much in opera that is about a specific Europeanized perspective, even when you have an opera that is not about Europe. And what this does is that it recenters Black creators those who have been historically marginalized. When you hear that incredible aria in Omar, tell your story, and and he's being urged to tell his story, to write his story down. It's not just Omar that is telling his story. It's Rhiannon's story. It's Michael's story. It's Kaneza's story. It's those creators who've created that opera. It's, It's their story too. We'll be right back with more after this quick message. Hi, I'm Jennifer Barry Hawes, a reporter from The Post and Courier. Working as a local reporter, I found that we can cover national stories in a way that reporters who come in from New York or D.C. or Atlanta simply cannot. We've lived in the community. We have contacts in the community. We've raised children here. We own houses here. We can bring perspectives that somebody coming in from the outside simply cannot. When stories come up, we know who to contact to find out what's going on. We understand the impact that it has on people who live here because we live here as well. That's why the local perspective that we provide is so important. Learn more at postandcourier.com slash subscribe. The first time I heard the full score was during a run-through about three weeks before opening night. And they gathered a bunch of people together in the ballroom of the Gilliard Center for a rehearsal, the full orchestra, the full chorus all of the singers, all of the leads, and John Kennedy on the podium, and they they worked through the whole thing. Not staged, you know, they were just, they, they were seated and the singers would stand up when it was their turn to sing, that kind of thing. But we really heard the music for the first time. 
And that was a really exciting moment because you could appreciate what a good job the two composers did. And then uh, that was a really terrific moment to hear it all. And it moved everybody. I mean, oh my God, Rhiannon and Michael afterwards were invited to say a few words and they struggled. They like, couldn't come up with complete sentences. You know, <laughs> they just, you know, they were clearly moved because they were hearing it for the first time. It was pretty great. Like we said before, this show had been in the works for years, but pulling off this world premiere was no easy task. Adam, along with photographer Gavin McIntyre, followed along with their rehearsal and preparation process in the weeks leading up to the debut in May. You know, the costumes and the sets, the sets are relatively complicated. They have video projection, they have screens and objects and staircases and structures, lighting that's not particularly simple. And trying to get all of that together, I think, was a challenge. And they were, they were working it right up to opening night. Kaniza Shaw, the director, was you know very hands-on, obviously, during that period. And I think they were very focused <laughs> on the technical challenges uh, throughout those couple of dress rehearsals. The other big challenge... And this was no small matter. This freaked everybody out, really, was that Jamez McCorkle, the lead, the tenor, Omar, during a rehearsal, he was running at the end of Act One. I think he ran down the aisle and twisted his ankle and really injured it. The second act of that rehearsal, he was seated the whole time. And the next time he was on stage, he was wearing one of those big boots that the doctors give you. Opening night came... And he was still in the boot and seated for Act One, singing beautifully. And I was concerned that that might disrupt the, the magic of the theatrical experience, you know. But interestingly, the fact that he was sort of stuck in a chair was less disruptive than I expected it to be. And then by the second act, he was actually out of the chair. He was up on his feet. All's well that ends well, I guess. I'm, I'm glad that they decided to proceed. I'm, I'm glad that he could sing the part, despite the injury, because he really does have a remarkable voice and just really brought the, the part to life. There were some pretty dicey moments. We, we were seeing an incredible labor shortage and technical labor. We've had incredible costs of, of production materials in an inflationary economy. There were some moments where it really felt like maybe we should have postponed this opera another year. But we did. We pulled it off. And I think we're better for it. We're stronger for it. And no matter what you do in an opera, the right thing to do, because no matter how much you spend working on an opera, no matter how many workshops you have, no matter how many resources you pour into this piece, after its first run, because it's such a collaborative art form, there will be a period of editing. Verity edited. Mozart edited. People need to edit. And what I love about Rhiannon and Michael is that they're already editing. <laughs> and I think that's so spectacular. I mean, and, and that's that as, as the person at the helm of Spoleto, that's, that's a trade-off I am willing to make. That is a gamble I am willing to take to have the premiere of these pieces. And we'll have, this will continue year in, year out at this festival to have the whole world look at what we are doing here, to lead our sector, to lead the performing arts with us through our vision. 
But sometimes maybe the piece isn't that perfect and you need to edit after the world premiere. I'm okay with that. I can take that. And I, and I, and I love that Rhiannon and Michael are already editing a little bit. But I think generally speaking, you know, people are enthralled. It's, it's a moment of music history. It's just a moment of history that it is a moment where we can actually talk about enslavement and have representation of enslavement through black creators in an opera. And normally the standard bearer of black representation in opera has been Porgy and Bess, likewise also based in Charleston, South Carolina. And to have now Omar tell a story that is not voyeuristic, is not trite, but is deeply embedded with the pathos of the subject and is deeply truthful is astounding. I think that it's um, a beautiful thing that this kind of artistic enterprise can be presented in Charleston specifically and to contribute to a larger narrative and a larger understanding of slavery and this important part of American history. And Charleston is uniquely positioned to present a lot of this history. When this year's Spoleto Festival ends here in Charleston, that of course won't be the end for this opera. It'll just be the beginning. Cities around the country are already preparing to perform this opera, and places around the world are interested. Omar, after Charleston, it's, it's traveling to L.A., to Chapel Hill, to San Francisco, to Chicago, to Detroit, to Boston. It's, it's going all over the country. So I think, I think that's because of the artistic merit of the work. And that's also because of the story the work tells. Having it premiered in Charleston is so integral to the mission of, of the arts. I mean, having this work premiered less than a mile away from where the person who wrote its autobiography that it's based on, Omar bin Said, was sold into enslavement at Gadsden's Wharf is just, that's monumental. To then have that be premiered here in Charleston and to see the words on stage, Charleston Slave Market, to hear Omar's final aria, which is a, an, an invocation, a plea to understand the severity of his story and his enslavement by saying, you people of South Carolina, you people of North Carolina, and say that to the audience itself. I had not quite experienced that before in opera. And, and I think that is one of its most effective, its, its emotional immediacy here in Charleston is incredibly effective and, and it can't be discounted. Its historic importance here in Charleston is incredibly effective to this city's grappling with its history. This is a city that is one of contradictions, and that's partly what makes the city beautiful. It's a city that takes all of its hard history and sometimes gauzes that with charm. And I think what we need to do as a society, not to mention as a nation, is grapple with that history. All right, that's all for today. 
There is so much more that you can learn about Omar and about this opera. There's Adam's story. Photographer Gavin McIntyre has put together photos and video where you can hear some of the music from the production and hear from people like Rhiannon Giddens and Michael Abels. We'll, of course, include links to all of that in today's show notes. You can also go to postandcourier.com slash Omar. As always, if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for this podcast, you can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week.